Blog Talk Radio. My name is Kim Lakin. I'm your host this evening. Evening, we are on scan number 3248. And um, we have a very special guest that I'm excited to introduce here in just a moment. But first, we have a single purpose here at NASCA, and that is to introduce, um, or to introduce, I'm sorry. Um, we have a single purpose in NASCA, and that is to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violence or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. One, by educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, also known as CSA, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, worldwide problems that affects everyone, and two, by offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse, and information for anyone who's interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. And again, we are on scan number 3248 this evening. And if you would like to be a part of our panel, we would love to have you join us. And whether you just want to listen in or you want to um, participate and ask questions, we'd love to have you. That number is, our guest caller number is 646-595-2118. So if you're calling in on that number, my um, co-host, Dr. Nancy, will meet you on the back line and see if you would like to just listen or if you have a question or want to to get in on the conversation. So we'd love to have you join us. Again, 646-595-2118. And then you can also access all of our past shows by going, including this one this evening. It's usually ready about a half an hour, I heard, after the, the show airs. And you can go to nasca.org, and that's N-A-A-S-C-A.org, and search for whatever scan number you're looking for. So again, tonight it's 3248. 
and um, and then you just click on that, and you can watch whatever show. It goes back years, and we are on number 3,248 on NASCA. But I heard just recently that there was actually about a thousand more, so um, on a different platform. So we've been very blessed to to be around for so long. So our very special guest this evening is Krista Transparency Jones, and she is from Chicago, Illinois. She was born and raised in St. Petersburg, Florida. Krista's passion is to help young girls and women acknowledge and heal from childhood trauma and sexual abuse. As she continues on her journey of redemption and recovery, Krista enjoys sharing her testimony through poetry and spoken words of others. That's by Brittany Jackson. Christina released her first book titled Suppressed Wounds, Redemption and Recovery back in March 2022. The book summary says she felt like she was always just good enough for sex, but now, but not good enough to be the woman on a man's arm. She had countless sexual encounters with men beginning at age three. She fought sexual perversions aimlessly until she realized that she did not have to fight the sexual battles of perversions on her own. Being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, at age 15, the eyes of her heart and her soul were opened for the first time. She was able to understand that she was fighting an invisible war. For we, we wrestled not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rules of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And that's from Ephesians 6.12. Pushing through stereotypical conundrums of, she must ain't got no daddy, she comes, she overcomes, <laughs> she overcomes and is overcoming what some have difficulty with acknowledging and addressing her past childhood and adulthood sexual trauma. So let's take a journey to this woman's redemption and recovery from suppressed wounds. So we are so honored to have you on with us this evening, Krista. And I am going to go ahead and unmute your mic, and you are on live now. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being on. We're honored that you want to tell your story on our platform. So um, we would like for you to just kind of start where you, um, wherever you want to start in your childhood, wherever you remember and wherever you want to start. Um, and then we're going to just have you kind of work chronologically through your life. And okay. in between, we may stop and ask questions. And, um, you know, we may even give you, you know, the first half an hour or so and kind of just go through your younger years and tell us how you were feeling and, and what happened, and then as much as you want to. And then um, we might just break and see if there's anybody else on the panel. Right now it's just okay. um, Dr. Nancy and I, but we are, you know, we would, there might be more people calling in and, and asking questions. So 
um, yeah, this is your night, and we want it to be all about you. So we'll just go ahead and let you get started. Do you have any questions before we get started? Awesome. I do not, but I just, you know, I'm just so grateful that you all have a platform like this, and it makes people, you know, like myself and like others who have dealt with, you know, childhood trauma, whether it be sexual, physical, or whatever it may be, or abandonment, you know, it makes us feel like we're not alone. So I just want to thank you and uh, Dr. Nancy and uh, thank Mr. Uh, William, <laughs> you know, and everyone else, all oh, yeah. the whole team. <laughs> Mr. Bill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, actually, you know, Bill, Bill started it long ago. So we are just very honored to be able to to help him out in this way. So yeah, it's been, a, it's yeah. been an honor. So yeah, we'll go ahead and turn it over to you. Let you take over. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, just like my bio, you know, I grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida, and Childhood for me, it it was it started off difficult. My mom was actually a teen mother. She was, I want to say, 16. My father was 15 um, when they had me. My mother, she ended up, she had to drop out of high school because, you know, it, at that point it was like, okay, either I continue to go to school or go to school and work or work and take care of this baby. Uh, growing up, we grew up in, you know, we had a moved to like a project building. Um, those who are back in St. Pete, they know it's called Jordan Park, <laughs> and that's where we grew up at. Um, every night there was like a lot of gunfire. Um, my mom would literally have to like take myself and my sister because two years later my mom had my sister, and she would take us into the living room, and she would like cover us just so that we wouldn't get like hit by any stray bullets because it was just that much gunfire. Um, today, they remodeled the whole, um, that whole project building, and now it looks like beautiful townhouses today. And um, so that's how that went initially. And we just, you know, my mom did the best that she could with raising two girls, and she's still being a teen herself. I want to say by this time she was 20 and she had two children. And... My father, at the time, he dealt strongly in drugs. He became addicted to crack cocaine when he was 19. So he wasn't in my life. My sister's father wasn't in her life at that time either. So, again, my mother did the best that she could do with two <laughs> two young girls. At about age three, that was when I told my mom, I said, Mom, you know, I, I, I can't really – say exactly how I said it to my mother, but I let her know that my private parts were hurting me. And what my mom did, she ended up taking me to a doctor and had me examined. The person that had touched me was a very, very close family member of mine. So when I told my mom that I think that it was this particular person, she stopped allowing me to spend time with this person. And that went on for probably like several years when my mom wouldn't allow me to have any contact with this individual. Um, so when I told my mom again that my parts were hurting me, she took me again to go get examined. The doctor did confirm that someone had touched me because there were actual like physical scars in between my legs. 
not only did I see a doctor, but I was also referred to a psychiatrist just, I guess, so they could, you know, make sure what I was saying was actually valid. Um, they were showing me different shapes and sizes and of different uh, different shapes, like they had the squares and the rectangles and triangles and things like that, and they had me draw on the paper just, again, to verify what I was saying was true. I don't remember if I met with a detective. I don't think my mother pressed charges against this individual, but, again, they stayed out of my life for probably about a good, I want to say maybe nine years. So during that time, too, again, with my mom being a single mother of two young girls, um, things got very, very hard for her. Um, Her mother had passed away, so we had moved in with some relatives. And I don't think it was just because my mom was, she was living on her own, but I think just dealing with the grief of losing her mother. And then I think my mom was expecting at that time another child. So we moved in with some relatives that could, you you know, help her. And this particular family member had children, and one of her daughters was one of the ones who began to, like, molest me. She was probably about 12, and I was around 5. And even at the age of 5, I don't know if we had talked about this before on the show or if I had heard this before, but usually when children are molested or, you know, sexually abused at a young age, you know, we have certain hormones that allow certain things to, to grow faster on us. Uh, we reproduce a lot sooner than a normal child. So my cousin who would molest me, she began to, like, make fun of how my body was reproducing. And she would, she would just, like, pick at me because of that, because my body was reproducing a lot faster in certain areas. But anyway, um that molestation, I think that was, like for her, influenced by pornography. Her parents had a huge pornography collection, and they would watch it, her and her her brother and sister, and then she would have me watch it alone with her. And everything that she would see in the videos that we would watch, at the time, back in the day, that was the VHS because, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't see that too much, like the VCR. So we would watch those tapes. Um, first, we would watch it with the, you know, the other, her other siblings, and then she would have me watch it with her alone. And whatever we seen on there, she would have me either do on her, or she would have, her, or she would actually do it on me herself. And I remember one time we were at one of our grand, like our grandparents' house, and we were. I'm sorry if I'm talking fast. I'm like. <laughs> Um, no, not we at were, all, but you can take a break if you um, want, if you want to take a breath. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but, but I got to breathe for <laughs> because it's not easy, especially when you're talking about relatives, you know, or just this, this subject. Um, but anyway, uh, I remember us being at a particular um, grandparent's house, and at this house, my grandmother, she had, it was a huge house, I think like probably back in like the 50s or so, she might have been like an indentured servant or or something like that. I know she did a lot of house cleaning, and I think that this house was left to her, and she was able to raise her family in this house. But it, like I said, it was huge. 
So my cousin would take me into, like, different bedrooms, and then she would still perform sexual acts on me. And then she would force me to to perform sexual acts on her. And that went on for probably about two years. I never told anyone um, at particular time. But, like, hindsight is like I wish I would have said something because maybe it would have stopped a lot sooner. Also around that time, um, age five, I began to use aerosol air freshener. Like one day I was in the bathroom and I just grabbed the aerosol can and I started spraying it, spraying it in my mouth. I guess today you would call that huffing, but like I would literally spray that in my mouth and then I became high. And I honestly think that me getting high from using an aerosol can was my way to subconsciously try to escape what was happening, you know, what my cousin was doing to me. And that was a real high. Like, I remember just sitting in the bathroom, spraying that crap in my mouth, and I would, like, literally sit there and talk to the shower curtain, and I would talk to the door, and then I would listen to the door, and, like, I I felt like I could listen to it. I was hallucinating, like, crazy. (laughs) And, um... That actually went on for for about six years. I was 11 years old when my mom caught me. I was in the car, and my dad, well, my mom had me get married to my stepdad. I don't like calling him my stepdad. I like calling him my father because he raised me. But I was cleaning out his car one particular uh, afternoon, and I had taken a can of air freshener out to the car with me. So I was just, like, spraying in my mouth. I didn't know that my mother was watching me from the window. So she came out car because I was sitting in the driver's seat, I remember, and she got really close to me, and she said, are you eating air freshener? And I'm like, Mm-mm. I'm trying to say no, but I think that I was having, like, an overdose because I began to foam out of the mouth, and she got really close, like, even closer to smell my breath, and, you know, she flipped out. My mom, she snatched me out of the car, and she disciplined me um, appropriately, of course, and I had never turned back to the weekend of air freshener again. I mean, it's comical, but I could have died, you know, but I think that that was like I found safety in using that, which was a drug, really. So I was addicted to drugs at age 5 to age 11. Um in between that, um, my mom, she had gotten married. Uh, I think I was seven at the time. My mother had gotten married to my father. And we moved in. We stayed a little while with his parents until they were able to get their own house. When we moved into our house, it might have been about age nine, um, he had male cousins who would stay the night with us. And the older male cousin. It's like he took a liking into me. And he had to be probably about, I want to say he was probably about age 15 maybe, and I was like nine. So he would just fondle me. Anytime he got an opportunity, he would just, like, touch on me and feel on me between my legs. Or And when I got older, and I actually wrote my book, Suppress Wounds, Redemption, and Recovery, um, I realized that I think that he was grooming me because from age nine until about age 14 was when, you know, he would molest me, molest me. There was never any, like, penetration, but he was always touching on me. 
and it didn't matter where we were. We could be at a relative, another relative's house or cookout, family reunion, birthday party, whatever it was. And now that I think about it, it's like, <laughs> like, did no one see him, you know, touching me? So that went on for a little while. Then I had um, a neighbor who lived right next to us moved in, and she had some children, and we would play with her children. And uh, one particular day she asked my mom if my sister and I could go to church with her. And my mom was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, and you just think, oh, that's going to church. You're praising the Lord. Go ahead. So my sister and I, we, I remember us getting on the church bus that came to pick us up, uh, went to the church service. It was, that's a whole other story. It was a lot of craziness going there, going on there. Around this time, I was probably about age 11. And I remember us going back home on the church bus, and there was a particular young man. I don't know if he was a young adult or if he was just an older teenager, but I remember him sitting in between my sister and I. Somehow he weaseled his way in between us, um, and he found a way to unbutton my dress. I remember wearing this long uh, jean dress, really pretty dress hat, like um, lace collar with the flowers on each side. But at this point, I just felt like, you know, well, I guess he, he can touch me. You know, everybody else has touched me. So he made his way into my underwear through my dress after he unbuttoned my dress. I don't think anyone's seen it, but also I felt like when he was doing it, it was just he and I. You know, and I didn't say anything at that point. I didn't even tell my mom. I think my mom found out, like, years later, you know, along with other stuff once I did release my book. Um, thing, things happened in school, you know, where boys would touch me and fondle me. And um, I remember at age 13, this particular time, different person, this was a, a relative of one of my aunts, which was one of her in-laws. And he had to be about 19 at the time. And my aunt, she and her husband, like their family, were a military family, so they were stationed in Germany. So whenever they would come over to the States, that's when other people, like in surrounding states, like with her being from Florida, um, her in-laws being from a different state that's close to Florida, they would come to Florida to see her when she's visiting with us. So that was the case this time. We ended up going to a popular theme park back in uh, Tampa. It's called uh, Bush Gardens. And we, you know, just was enjoying each other, enjoying each other. But I, I realized that he had also taken a liking to me. And he wanted me to ride all the rides with him. And I thought it was cool. You know, I didn't really think anything of it. And I think at that point, at age 13, I think I was kind of going through kind of like a, a, a sexual identity, you know, thing because I was like a tomboy. Um, and I think that was also probably another mechanism to try to avoid off people or keep people away from touching me inappropriately. So I began to, like, dress like a boy. I played basketball. <laughs> And and just ways that I tried to protect myself. But, again, I didn't think anything of it when I was hanging out with this older guy at the theme park until um, he, asked my, he asked me and my sister 
if we had wanted to go back to the hotel that he and his mom were staying at. And I was like, well, why? And he was saying, oh, you know, we got a pool there. And I was like, okay, cool. So I told my little sister, and she's like, yeah, she's like down for everything. Like, yeah, we, we can go back and get in the pool. Um, so that's what we did. And since we were going back to the hotel, he had asked if my sister and I could ride in the car with him and his mom. And, I, again, I didn't really think anything of it. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, I sat in the back seat behind his mother, and he sat in the front seat passenger seat. So his mother couldn't see the gestures that he kept making towards me. So I remember him turning around and asking me to unbutton my shirt so he could see my breath. And I'm like, no, you know. Um, once we actually made it to the hotel and got into the pool with my mother, my mother and my aunt, they were able to leave, like, ahead of us so they could go to go to the house and grab our swim, me and my sister's uh, swim clothes. So that's what they did. So we met them back at the hotel. Uh, my mother, aunt, and my aunt's in-laws, they were, like, playing cards and just spending time, like, doing adult time. And this particular guy, he took my sister and I down to the pool so that we could enjoy it. Um, so, so what we had to do was we had to, um, you know, we had to go with him. So once we were with him in the pool, that's when the fondling and touching and things um, began again. Like, well, not begin again with him, but, like, just begin in general. And I thought that that was over in my life because I tried different things to try to protect myself and safeguard myself from that. So um, he began to do that in the pool. He began to sing to me, almost like, like serenading me, if that's the right term. Um, then he asked me, could I go to one of the restrooms with him, like a nearby bathroom? So I did. And things almost got pretty... You know, get some breathing again. Um, things kind of almost took a turn for the worse when we went into the restroom. However, someone knocked on the door right before he was able to insert himself in me. A couple of months had passed by um, once he and his mom had returned home, but then we continued to communicate with each other, and I think that his mom and my mom, they didn't really think anything of it. They thought, oh, you know, they're friends or almost kind of like in-laws or whatever because of the, the relation, however it is. But my mother, she ended up finding a letter in my purse because at this time I thought that, like, maybe we were in a relationship with each other. Again, he was 19 and I was 13. I was coming out of the eighth grade, so that was like the summer of eighth grade going into the ninth grade, is that that's when we met. And, again, I thought now, you know, because, I, you know, I let him do these things to me, um, that we are in a relationship with each other. So when my mother found this letter in my purse that was addressed to him because he lived in a different state, so that's why I was just communicating with him that way. I was also communicating with him by phone, and I would sneak and talk to him because he would tell me to call him, you know. But I never thought about it until, again, years later, 
he never called me. He always wanted me to call him. He never wrote me letters, but he always wanted me to write him letters. So when my mom found the letter and she seen how explicit the letter was, she questioned me and was like, what's going on between you and let's just say his name is um, Tyrone, right? So she's like, what's going on with you and Tyrone? And I, I told her what we had did. So her and my father, they called him. They called his phone, what called the, the house phone, and they spoke with his parents, and I think they spoke to him, and he denied anything ever happening between us. He just was like, you know, the girl, she's crazy. I don't know. I guess she likes me, but there's nothing. I didn't do anything with her. And, you know, and that really, that broke my heart. So age 14, because my birthday is, my birthday is August. I'm an August baby. And with that being the summer to, you know, going into the ninth grade, out of eighth grade, my birthday was in August, so I had turned 14. So I decided, since I'm 14, I'm going to go find me a boyfriend. So one particular night, I found something as scandalous as possible, you know, something really tight-fitting that my mama usually wouldn't let me wear. And I snuck out the house. And my dad, he worked at night. So I felt like that was like the perfect opportunity to go out and find a boyfriend, meaning, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places and trying to find what I thought I lost in this particular individual. Um, Kim, I don't know if you have any questions. I feel like I'm like, oh, I'm just talking, talking, talking. <laughs> yeah, do you want to go ahead and just take a break and and we can see? Just kind of open up the panel and see if anybody would just say anything. But yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, we've kind of gone through those first early years, and um, I just, want to say I'm so sorry that all of that has happened to you. I can relate to a lot of different times in your story. I think like a lot of us can when we've been through a lot of trauma in our child. And um, mm-hmm. you're doing a great job. So thank you so much for mm-hmm. just being so open and sharing everything. Oh, yeah. We do appreciate you. You're welcome. Oh, yeah. Welcome. Take a breath. <laughs> Take a drink if you want to drink <laughs> something and... Um, yeah, and so let's see if any, does anyone have any questions? So the lines are all open now. <laughs> yeah, um, Christine, I just want to say thank you for joining us tonight, and thank you for sharing your story. It's never an easy thing to do. It's always, you know, it takes a lot. It takes a lot. Um, so I just, again, want to just commend you for rising up and for being a voice for so many and you know in 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 your story, a lot of us can we can relate to your story, and we can see ourselves in a lot of those stages, right um and where you just mm-hmm. left off looking for love in all the wrong places, and so uh trauma can definitely cause you to to make poor choices right you're young um right. and such a such a hard process. A lot of teenagers have been there and are going through that now. And so I'm just really looking forward to continuing to hear your story. It's always um, very inspirational. And the transparency, again, it helps so many people. There are people dealing with depression, um, you know, and, and fighting with that mm-hmm. spirit of suicide. And because they feel alone. 
And so hearing your story right. lets people know that they're not alone. And these things are, unfortunately, they're, some of these things are common. If you've been through sexual abuse at an early age, it opens up a lot of portals, and it just, you know, it just opens you up to a lot. And so just, again, want to commend you right. for your transparency and for sharing your right. story. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Nancy, and thank you, Kim. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So yeah, you can so I guess I can that, um, uh-huh. yeah, you can you can continue on. I just um I was gonna say that I think you know, like like you were just saying, a lot of times it just kind of opens you up a little bit for some reason. And I don't know if it's naivety about us or mm-hmm. it's the vulnerability that that predators pick up on because right. um, you know, that was really young to start that, you know, and then um, someone to continue to have to be in those instances. I'm sorry that that was your reality as a child. That just didn't give you much time to be a child. You know? Right. Right, right. I, I appreciate that. And like, I know. And it, it's, oh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say, you know, I've I've heard people say that as well. Like it's it's almost like this this target or something's written on your forehead like touch me or hit me, slap me, do whatever you want to do to me. And and that's what I felt like, you know. Yeah. yeah I'm sorry. And then a lot of times, yeah, just the the kids as you're growing up too, are just naturally bullies. And then you throw in that aspect of, um, you know, maybe children also have been abused who are now coming at you to show their, you know, show how strong they are and how powerful they are and that they can have control over something else. And so I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times that's how that continues on, unfortunately. And if, if people don't, we were just talking about this, I think on Monday night show. If a child doesn't necessarily get to, oh, no, it was in my book club. That's what it was. Um, if a child doesn't have an opportunity to see that there's a different way to, mm-hmm. then that's what they're going to continue to look for in relationships. Right. And then, um, you know, but if you've got, and because in, well, in my book club, there's a lot of, um, professionals in Colorado who work with child abuse systems and, um, you know, some advocates. And, and it's, a, it's a really neat group of people that we've just started this book club together. And, um, okay. and you know, it's, yeah, <laughs> talking about the club. But, yeah, we're, and we're <laughs> reading a book. Um, it's okay. called No Place Like Home, and it is um, close back to, you know, it's about the same mm. thing that we talk about and um, that we're talking about on here. But, you know, you are just groomed from the time that you're little, and, and unfortunately, some people never get to see the other side. And mm. so that's what they continue on. And even, um, unfortunately, in my case, it was too in my family. It, it was generational, not by the same person, but, you know, generational because um, people weren't educated. And I think mm-hmm. that's so much, you know, what we are trying to do today is get more of the prevention aspect there so that 
people are more educated and people can recognize and it doesn't have to continue in a child's life forever and ever. So, right. And that's just always my prayer as well. And and it sounds like your faith is very strong to you, so I can also relate to that. I was sent to school, to Sunday school, one of us, and um, so my parents weren't with me or anything. But, but I think mm. that was a huge part of my foundation is, you know, just knowing that there was Jesus and that there are other ways. It didn't have to be the same as what my family has been showing me. So, um, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I will turn it back over to you. I'll give me a little break. And <laughs> but, um, yeah, I look forward to hearing more about your story. So thank you. You ready to continue? Yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah, thank thank you for that breather. It's <laughs> a segue. Um, but so I think where I stopped off at is turning fourteen, enter the ninth grade, I was on this whole mission of I'm gonna find me a boyfriend because Tyrone, he lied on me. He told my mom and my dad that nothing ever happened between us even though he wanted, you know, even though he was the one telling me to call him, he was the one telling me to write him, and then when we would sneak on the phone and talk very late at night, he would tell me all these things that he wanted to do to me and how he wanted to do this and how aroused he was while he was at work. He worked at a bank. The crazy thing about this story is that I know I, I co-facilitate um, a, a group with Dr. Nancy and I shared with them, I think I shared with them one night, my decision to reach out to him. After all these years, I reached out to him, and I wanted to tell him that I forgive him. And I wouldn't recommend that for everyone. And I feel like, you know, you can forgive people if you choose to forgive them without actually going out and reaching back out to them and telling them that, because in this situation, um, I actually processed it with, I have a therapist, and I processed it with her, and I was telling her her, I was telling her his responses when I reached out to him. This was probably about seven months ago, six or seven months ago, and I felt like it was something that I needed to do. I'm like, I need to tell him this because I'm, I'm co-facilitating this group with, you know, of other people who have dealt with sexual trauma, and I'm talking about forgiveness, so let me just reach out to him, and I wish I never did because he tried to turn everything back on me, and that's that victim blaming, blaming the victim. And he was telling me how he forgives me for telling my parents whatever I had to tell them to keep myself out of trouble. And then he told me how he was afraid to come back to Florida for so many years because he thought he was going to go to jail. And then I'm thinking, like, as an adult, like, okay, you knew that you did something that was inappropriate to me. So... Again, <laughs> to the listeners, if you do your, your if this is part of your healing journey to forgive people, I would just highly recommend that you just you talk to someone else about it, maybe a counselor, pastor, best friend, or someone that you can confide in and just say, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Um, I shared it with my husband, you know, and I was reading to my husband verbatim the messages between myself and quote-unquote Tyrone. And what he was saying, and my husband was like, 
no, that that's not appropriate. You know, that he you need to just stop communicating with him altogether because it was almost like he began to romanticize those things that had happened. And then he, you know, it, that's a whole other story. But anyway, um, thir- uh, 14, decided I was going to find a boyfriend. I snuck out the house. My dad, he worked from 7 p.m. until 7 a.m. in the morning. My mother, she went to sleep. She was a hard sleeper. 9 o'clock every night. So that's when I decided, yep, I'm going to go out. I snuck out the back door. I started walking our block. We had moved to an area called, like, Child's Park. (laughs) Those in St. Pete, they know about Child's Park. We call it CPAD, Child's Park After Dark, because a lot of crazy things happen after dark. But me, being naive, as we mentioned before, I was thinking that I was doing the right thing by trying to make myself happy, by trying to heal myself from what I believe was a broken heart from this grown man that I was involved with. Um, This particular night, I ran into a guy, and he asked me questions because he was at the park. He was standing at the park, and he asked me my name. He asked me my age. I told him my name. I told him that I was 14, and he was like, no, you're lying. You're not 14. I was like, I am 14. Um, he came closer to me, and then that's when he actually took his hand and he reached underneath my skirt, and he was like, you're not 14. I said, no, I am 14. And then he asked me if I was a twerker. So I thought twerker was just like a dancer or a stripper, and I'm like, I, I ain't no twerker. You know, I don't, I'm not a twerker. So he was like, well, yes, you are. Because, you know, I'm outside that particular, you know, that, that night, at night, at 11 o'clock at night, and I'm walking those streets. So what he asked me to do, he said, hey, how about you get in the car and, like, holler at my homeboy, you know, come and, you know, talk to my guy that's in the car. And I did that. I got in the car. And I was just still thinking to myself, well, if this is what it takes to get a boyfriend and someone that's going to love me, so be it. So I got into the car, and there was this guy. He was sitting in the driver's seat. And I guess this is what, you know, they do. You know, they do this in the hood. They just hang out at the park or on the corner by their cars or in the car and either smoke, smoke some weed and just drink or just, you know, that that's just what they do. So I got in the car. guy that was sitting in the, in the, in the, the actual driver's seat, he was huge, really huge black guy. And I remember he's asked me my name. <laughs> he asked me my age. I told him my age. He also said that I was lying. And then he reached between my legs. And that spiraled into, like, me and him. We ended up having sex. And that was my first time, my first actual sexual encounter of penetration. And... um this was with a stranger, you know, everybody, like a lot of people, they talk about their first time being with somebody special, but, you know, again, in my mind, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. So after I had sex with him, the first guy that was asking me questions, like if my twerker, he got into the car, he asked me to get into the back seat, had sex with him. Once he was done, there was another guy that came up, had sex with him. Once he was done, I thought, okay, well, I'm done, so let me put my clothes on. Um, with the second guy, 
I had to end up getting into the back seat because he wanted me to get into the back seat. So I'm fixing my clothes, getting my clothes together, and I'm pushing the, the passenger seat up so I can get out of the car. He was driving, uh, I think this was like a Cutlass, Supreme Cutlass, a Cutlass Supreme two-door car. <laughs> so I'm pushing the seat up, and then another guy come up. So this is guy number four, and he started, like, pushing, the, you know, he was pushing the seat back while I was trying to push it up so I can get out. And then he began to push on me. He pushed my shoulder, and he said, well, hey, it's my turn. So I had sex with him. So now I'm thinking, okay, here are four guys I've just given myself to. And um, I said, okay, so now it's time for me to go ahead and get back home. However, the last two guys that I was with, they wanted me to be with them again in that way kind of talking in code a little bit because of the location I'm in, but they wanted me to do that same thing with them two more times. So I did that, and then I said, okay, well, now it's time for me to go home. So on my way, like trying to walk back home, I don't know what time it is, and and at that time I didn't have a cell phone because my mom, they didn't believe in giving kids cell phones at that time, and I don't even think, like, it wasn't really – a lot of people didn't have cell phones still at during that time. But um I remember walking back home and a guy had stopped me. He was riding a bicycle, grown man. He stopped me, he got off the bicycle and he asked me my name, he asked me my age. I told him my name, I told him my age. So then he was like, Okay, well what are you doing this time of night? You know, you're a young girl and he said, Let me walk you home So we proceeded to walk home, well, proceeded to walk, and I was like, well, I don't want him to know where I live at. So I was like, here, let's cut down this alley, which, <laughs> you know, going down a dark alley with a grown man, but I thought, me being naive, he was really trying to help me, um, but that wasn't that wasn't the case. Ended, ended up having sex with him behind some neighbor's house. Finally, when I got into our house, I got into the shower, um, and I remember just, like, washing myself and washing, you know, and me bleeding, you know. But even during that, it was like I almost got a rush. It was almost the same rush that I felt when I started using the air freshener as a drug. And I'm just like, this kind of, this feels good. It was like an adrenaline rush. So I was like, I'm going to do this again the next day and the next day and the next day, whenever I got an opportunity. So as I began to meet up with the guys, the crowd became larger. Um, I remember being in a car, and there would be about maybe 15 other guys standing around the car, like banging on the window and saying, hey, it's my turn, it's my turn. So I think that that crowd began to draw unwanted attention. So they had me go into the very first person that I was involved with into his house, which was right across the street from the park, and he had a garage, and in the garage was a bathroom. So these grown men would take turns. They would stand at the garage door and just wait for their turn to go in. And that went on for a couple of months. You know, I didn't – I wasn't scared. I just, you know, I I loved the, uh, the attention you know, I wasn't scared about I wasn't afraid of dying. I wasn't afraid of catching any diseases. I'm just like I felt invincible. So I remember one particular night when I 
call myself walking the streets. And this guy that I normally see used to be like, he used to hang out at the corner store. And um, he came up to me and he started asking me the same thing. What's your name? How old are you? And I said, oh, you know, my name is Christina. I'm 14. And then again, the whole, you're lying. I'm like, I'm not lying about my age. I'm really 14. And thinking about just that, that age, you know, you can look at someone, you can look at their face, you can have a conversation, and you can tell that, you know, most of the time, you can, if there's not like a developmental delay, you can tell, like, this is a child. You know, I look at 14-year-olds today, and, yeah, some of them, you know, they, they got the big butts and breasts and all that stuff, but you look at them and you talk to them and you tell, like, this is a baby, you know, and they knew that. So, anyway, he began to touch on me, fill on me, then he started to grab on me, and I'm pulling away from him. We were standing in the middle of the street, and I remember there were cars just, like, driving past. One car came so close, I, would, I remember, like, tapping on their windshield, banging on the windshield. I'm saying, help, please help me, while this guy is still grabbing on me. And the guy, I remember he, the, the guy that was driving the car, he just threw up his hands and he kept going. And finally, someone heard me screaming, and they said, hey, man, leave that girl alone. You know, so he left me alone. But that night I continued on my journey of walking, 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 ended up sleeping with someone, I think two guys that night. But then I said, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to stay inside. And I remember after about two to three weeks being in my room and I heard a knock at the door. Uh, Not at the door, I'm sorry, a knock at the window. And still to this day I can't figure out how they knew which window to knock on you know, which window to to come to. So I don't know who told them because up to that point, I had never snuck anybody in. So those same guys from the the area, the Charles Park area, kept asking me could they come in. Eventually I did let them in. So that was a thing that they would just come in, come in the window all hours of the night. Like I didn't care about my mom or my sister sleeping. Like these were big time drug dealers, these were adults, you know, they could have killed my sister and my mother, but I didn't care about it, you know, I just liked that attention. So, um, so can I ask, that happens. can I ask you Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> no, I was just wondering, because I don't know that you mentioned, or maybe I mentioned, I missed it. Um, so were you ever getting anything for these encounters, or was it just all about you giving sex away. Was it, were they giving you sex or money or anything? No, no. And that that's the crazy part about it too, is that I was like, well, not the crazy part, but I was like, no, you know, you know, I don't, I'm not a prostitute, but here it is. I'm giving my body away. And the wild thing about this as well is that my mother had me in an abstinence program like I was living a double life because I excelled. I excelled in school, very smart. I, you know, I excelled in the abstinence program that was actually held at the same park. So when I would go to the to the park to the abstinence group and participate, like they labeled me as one of the leaders. Um, they had me even speak on behalf of the group. And here it is. I'm doing this in the daytime. I didn't even sleep. I didn't. I didn't sleep at all. That's why I believe. You know, I definitely believe in um, in the spiritual world, 
and I believe that I was being influenced by by maybe a demon or something that wanted me to to die because I never slept. It was school in the day, walking the streets at night. It was going to the abstinence program, and then the guys that I was involved with who hung out around the park, they would come, they would knock on that window as well. They would even come by the classroom and just say, hey, you you coming back tonight? And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll be back. You know, like I was really living a double life. Um, and uh, I just say that, you know, God had his hand on me because I could have I could have been killed, you know, out there having sex with random guys in cars and the playground at late at night and abandoned houses, you know, with, with no doors, like just doing wild stuff just to try to fill this, this void that I, I – feel like I needed to feel, to feel. and I, I do think that if my father, my biological father, was in my life, that maybe things would have been different, because, I mean, people, you know, they'll make assumptions and say, oh, she ain't got no daddy, you know, and I heard you, you chuckle earlier when you read that, but thank you for saying that, like the conundrums of, oh, she ain't got no daddy, that's why she's like that, she, her daddy ain't this, and this is this, but it's like, you don't understand, like, I was really fighting an invisible war against myself, but that all happened. Um, a next-door neighbor who was also a relative, um, not the one that took us to church, but who lived on the other side, um, who had been trying to sleep with me, him and his father had been trying to sleep with me, and I think they had been trying to do that since I was probably like 13. And um, he told my dad what was going on because he knew the guys that was also in the neighborhood, like he he knew them. So he told my dad that, oh, you know, Christina's doing this, doing that, and what they need to do. Because my dad, he said he would see a lot of, like, he noticed how the, my, my, um, the screen on my window was, like, kind of bent and broken. And then he noticed, like, he would see a lot of condoms on the ground in the backyard. So he just thought, like, oh, these just, you know, neighborhood kids getting their groove on and throwing their nests in, in the backyard. But they played me. My parents played me, which, is a, which you know, this is probably what saved my life, is that my dad, he pretended like he was going to go to work that particular night. So I'm like, okay, good. So let me go ahead and get my outfit. You know, let me just prepare myself because I know the guys are going to start coming. They're going to start knocking on the window at a certain time. And usually, like maybe about around 11.30 to midnight, they'll start knocking, and then I'll sleep with each individual, and they'll they'll leave and, and go on their way. But this this particular night, around 11, 11.30-ish at night, I remember, like, the lights were on. They, was, they were turned on in the living room and in the kitchen. I'm like, why are those lights on? My mom should be asleep. My dad should be at work. And... um my parents, they asked me to come into the living room. And when they did that, heard a knock on the front door, and it was police officers. And my parents asked me, what was I doing? And I was honest with them and told them what I was doing. Now, even though the guys, they never had paid me, but I do think that they had a, a – there was a girl who I went to school with. She was a little bit older than I. I think that she was trying to pimp me out. You know, or wanted me to become like this cleanup woman. There's a there's an old school song called the cleanup woman, 
and she was saying that I should try to do that so I could get some money as well. But, again, I was like, I don't want to be labeled as a prostitute, but here it is. I'm <laughs> being very promiscuous. But, anyway, um, my parents yeah. um, questioned me about what was what was happening. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh-oh. No, I just okay. yeah, I mean, you couldn't have probably made that connection at that age. I mean, you just Mm-mm. weren't really – I mean, you just didn't want to be known as that. Yeah. And so what right. you were doing wasn't that because you weren't getting paid for it. So – it made perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. Yeah. Right. Well. Right. So um, so the police was there. Police had got a statement from me, um, because once I told my parents what was happening, and I remember when we were leaving out because my parents had taken me to um, save, which is a uh, for those who know it's a sexual assault victims to get a sexual assault victim's examination at the local health department. And I didn't realize that, you know, to get those done, they'll be there. You know, you call the police, and um, if you're reporting a rape and they, they want to get evidence and things like that, like they're actually there probably whatever time you need to be there because I want to say this was probably by this time it might have been about midnight because it was like 1130-ish when my parents called me into the living room with the police officers. So when we were leaving out the door, going to the car, the guys that were, you know, scheduled to come and knock on my back door, not not the back door, I keep saying back door, I'm sorry, to knock on the window, they walked past us. And I remember they were just giving me, like, this really nasty side eye. And I'm feeling bad because I didn't want them to think that I called the police. It was my parents who called the police. But it's like just that was my 14-year-old mind thinking that. But as a grown woman today, it's like, bro, you're you're an adult. Like, if you're sneaking in someone's window and you're 20 and 30, like, that's not right. So I got the, the examination done. They said they, you know, once the exam was completed, they gave me a Plan B pill, you know, because there was so much, they found so much semen inside of me. Again, I'm just grateful to still be here and to still be alive, you know. Um, so that was that was that incident. But like to kind of fast forward, um, like my parents, they didn't know really what to do. They wanted to send me to a military school, but you know they didn't have the the money to do that. So my mom was like, well you need to just drop out of high school and go get your GED, which is there's totally nothing wrong with that. That's, I think that's a great alternative if you if you can't be in school or whatever may have happened. Because even though my mom, she dropped out of high school, she went back and she got a high school diploma years later, and, you know, she she's doing very well, and I'm very proud of my mom. But, um, but anyway, I think God had different plans because I ended up staying at the school. Um, I did graduate. I went to college, you know, my, my first major was psychology, but then I said, no, let me do social work because I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to take statistics, statistics, but still had to do statistics. But I, I just say all that to say no matter what you've been through, no matter how your life started off or what someone has done to you, you still have an opportunity and a chance to do what it is that God has ordained you to do or created you to do and be and, and become, you know, um, I 
and and that's what I do. And I, you know, I, I try to motivate people or encourage them, you know, because at the time, like, people had written me off, you know, they didn't want anything to do with me. You know, friends that I had, thought I had in elementary school, in high school, they didn't want to be seen with me because they didn't want to be known as a hoe or anything like that. And um, that hurt. Like, I, I still think about that. <laughs> you know, I, I even had a, a childhood friend tell me, around that time because she ended up getting pregnant and she told me she was like well you should have won you should have been the one that got pregnant not me like she was angry she was like you were the whore not me you were the whore you should have had this baby and i'm like well the, no i mean it's just it ha- everything happens the way it's supposed to happen um no matter how painful it is there's always a purpose for it um i got married <laughs> You know, it's a wonderful husband. I love him so much. Um, And I'm just, being with him is helping me to learn even more about myself. Like, he's the one that encouraged me to write the book. He's encouraging me to tell my story. And um, and I just, I've just been on this journey. Oh, that's awesome. It's so nice when you can find a partner that will understand you and hold you and support you and just love who you are. So how long have you guys been married? Uh, we've been married for five years. We've been together for six, married for yeah. five. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I mean, because a lot of times it's hard to find a person that won't look at, um, well, if, if it's not the right person, I guess. That's maybe what I should say. If it's not the right person <laughs> and if it's not a healthy person, then they would mm-hmm. use that. They would use your past against you. And so right. I'm glad that you found someone that, that was able to be there for you and not, not have to use that against you. Shall we see if Dr. Nansen has any questions before you move on? Yeah, um, it's always you know, a pleasure hearing your story and, again, being able to relate to a lot of the parts of your story. And um, and just thank God that you're here and thank God that you made it and mm-hmm. that you're able to share your story because there's so many who haven't made it. You know, so some people right. have taken their own lives after going through this from shame and, uh, and guilt mm-hmm. and all of that. And then some people have been murdered, you know, living that type of life. Um, not understanding right. how dangerous it could have been, like like when you said that that guy came and started trying to attack you, and and mm-hmm. he was like, I don't know if he was like a homeless person or what he right. was, but it wasn't someone you were looking like, okay, come on, it was somebody you were like scared of, right. um, and that could have gone a whole other way, and so just you know glad that you're here in your space and um, and just able to share with us your your testimony. And and um and does your you are really a, a true testimony because you went through that test but now you're doing work and giving back to the community and um you know when what you've been through you're able to help others. So just wanna say yeah. we love you and we appreciate you. I love you guys too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um I did have a piece that I wrote. I don't know if I have time to share that. Oh, yeah, we've got plenty of time. We've got 26 minutes left, so we've got plenty of time. <laughs> oh, 
Go ahead. Oh, 26 minutes. Okay. Well, no, let, let's kind of go back a little bit um, with my story. Because, I mean, because I know, Kim, you said, you know, having a partner who, you know, is supportive and, and not try to use my past against me. I was with the, I was with a partner. Um, you know, I met this guy, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, this is it because he was saying, you know, God showed me him in a vision and and that I'm supposed to be his wife. And I go by, oh, okay, well, you know, the word does says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So I'm thinking like, okay. But it was something that was just in my spirit. It's like, this, I don't think this is your husband. But he kept insisting that I was supposed to be his wife. And we became we became friends initially, and at that time I was really really strong in, in ministry. I'm like going different places and sharing my testimony, um, and I had been practicing abstinence. I was abstinent for four years from from sex. Like you know, I'm like no, I'm not having sex again. I'm, I want to wait until I'm married. Um, but <laughs> I ended up going to his apartment one day because I was helping him. I found out. Let me let me kind of go back. Uh, where I met him, I was volunteering at a transitional home, and I saw that he was one of the volunteers because he looked so, you know, well put together. Like, you know, um, just, I, you know, sometimes he would be cleaning, and I would help clean as well. And I was volunteering at this transitional home because I'm like, okay, I can volunteer here because I want to eventually have a transitional home uh, of my own to help, like, um, women who are HIV positive, who are ex-offender women, and also a place for, like, teen girls that they just need to come. And it, I was going to call it, like, a panty pantry, so if they needed, like, you know, toiletries and stuff like that, um, if they just needed somewhere to take a shower. You know, I really, my heart was really into that. So that's how I ended up hooking up with this um, the person over this transitional home. Uh, this particular home was for people who were um, ex-offenders, and those who were recovering from drug abuse, and I just again I thought that he was one of the one of the um, actual volunteers like myself because we would talk and and you know and and nothing against you know people who are in recovery because I feel like in certain aspects of our lives we're all in recovery, you know. So, but when you are going through like the steps, the different steps in the AA and NA programs, like they encourage you to not. Get, in, get involved romantically, you know, especially if you're early in your, your recovery stages. So I didn't realize all that until, like, years later until I started working in substance abuse. But anyway, um, he told me that he wanted to get out of the program. This is once I found out that he was actually in the program, and he had to get permission from the person that was over him to say, you know, you guys can hang out and befriend each other and, and go out. And she knew that he had really liked me. So we would spend a lot of time together. Um, I would take him to events where I would minister at. Minister at, um, But then it got to a point where he just, he he wanted to be sexually involved with me. And I told him, like, no, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that right now. I, I want to wait until I'm, I'm married. Um, yeah, I got a pass, but he would use that against me all the time. He was like, but you did this, you did that. And I'd be like, yeah, I did that. That was me, but I really want to wait. So one particular evening, again, he was in the process of trying to transition out of the transitional program, and um, he wanted me to, like, just kind of support him through that transition. So I, I was supporting him. 
One night I called him to see where he was, to see if he made it out safely to get to where he needed to be, but I couldn't reach him. So finally, the next morning I get a phone call, and it's from him. He was at the hospital. He had overdose, he overdosed on crack cocaine. And I didn't realize until that, that point when I found that out, I went to the hospital, was sitting there with him. Um, I tried to help him get into, like, another program that could help him. Like, I guess something that he does, like, with when he uses the drugs, he would do it one time, one time per month, like he'll smoke a lot of crack. And I felt like since my dad overcame the crack addiction that, you know what, if I stand by his side, he's going to do it. But that wasn't the case. So anyway, that for, I want to say like two nights later, he was discharged and I was able to help him get into his, get settled into his, um, into the, the place that he found uh, for himself. And I went there, helped him with groceries, and just kind of settled with him. And I sat there with him for a little while. And that particular night, he took advantage of that situation, and he raped me. And because I cared about him a lot, I stayed. I stayed after he begged me and begged me. He apologized. He Like, I'll never do it again. But I, I stayed because I thought, okay, well, you know, he made a mistake. And I think that is a, the thinking of, you know, some of us who have been, you know, in those situations and, you know, we sometimes we, we either we are super guarded or we have our guard our guards down. And I felt like I had my guards down because I'm like, you know, okay, he did apologize. Let me give him another chance. So that was that situation. I finally was able to, to leave him. Um, after several months, but it felt like several years because I, I honestly, when I was in the relationship with him, I felt like the only way that I could get out was by death. Like if I die, then I'll be out of it. However, if I die, I won't be here anymore. But God saw fit to separate us at the time that he did. But the piece that I want to share with you all is titled You Knew. And this piece is very near and dear to my heart. It was one of the exercises we did in our in our small group and me having a conversation with God. So without further ado, I'm going to share it unless anyone has, like, any questions or. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing with us. You're welcome. You're welcome. <sighs> Touching. Pulling, tugging. I feel tension in my head. Blackness fills the shades in front of my eyes. Darkness surrounds me. Billows of heavy clouds burst, and the emotional roller coaster goes full speed down each side of my face. I only wanted a warm embrace, but you took the innocence away from me before I could properly speak or write my name. A, B, C, D, S, E, X. He tried to do to me when I was three, then four. But wait, there is more. This time, the he became a she, and I was five, and she was about 12 or 13. Why me? I found a savior in addiction at age five, way before I was found by the savior who, too, felt forsaken, but he bled and died for me so I could be set free. But years later, I still asked. Why me? Why me? 
I did it to show you, I did it to show others about my redemptive love, equipping you with the Holy Spirit's protection and power. What he and she and they did is not justified, but I promise if you would only abide in me, I will continue to give you the victory over every stronghold in your life. I am the groom. You are my bride. I am here to help you denounce the delusions of the enemy. I'll give you boldness so you'll never have to hide. I am here to Free you in your mind. I am yours and you are mine. What we have is divine. As a matter of fact, you are divine. I am divine. Trust me with your heart. Trust me with your tears. I will forever catch your tears and your cry is not too far from my ears. I love you. You are precious to me. But God, you knew. You didn't stop it when you had the power to do so. Why me? Why me? I wanted to be normal, simple, and live unafraid. Now I have to heal from self-inflicted wounds that doesn't seem to be real. My reality seems shattered, and I don't even know if this is real, trying to deal in hope and not be lost in temporary dope. Where is the rope? Where is the rope? You don't need the rope. I will hold you, my child, my girl, my daughter. You are me and I am you. You were created in my image. You are me and I am you. I promised you that I will never leave nor forsake you. But where were you? God, where were you? You knew. You knew. I was there so you could be here. I've been with you before you were implanted in your mother's womb. I was there, and I grieved. I hurt with you. I cried with you. I cried the tears you could not release because I knew and know the plans I have for you. If you did not go through what you went through, you wouldn't have experienced the type of love that only I can give. And through you, others will experience my love and know who I am is. Yes, I knew. I knew that all of this will work out for your good and my glory. Daughter, I am sorry. I know. But you knew. Please, Lord, help me to make sense out of all this senseless mess. Please, daughter, take my hand and trust me. Because when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Isaiah 43, 2. You knew. (laughs) That's that piece. (sighs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because sometimes we can, you know, we try to figure out, like, okay, well, God, why is you so good? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? And I found myself questioning myself, and I wrote this in May, May 12th of this year, trying to process things. You know, that's why I believe healing is a lifelong process. It's scary, but it's worth it when you when you get on when you get on that get on that train and you say, you know what? 
I got to get over this because I have a whole generation behind me, and I even have a whole generation in front of me who have not shared yet. You know, there are people who are 80 that's still holding on to or haven't even shared, like, you know, things that happened to them when they were three. You know, can you imagine going that long in your life and still holding on to so much of that stuff, you know? Uh, I can't. And I can't even imagine going through life with all of that baggage and not having Christ in my life. So I know that that. And I think that it is, for some people, it's not Jesus. You know, it's not Christ. It's, you know, something else. And so I think that Mm -hmm. that does help people get to a grounded space. And I think we all, to be able to heal, to start the journey of healing and and continue it for the rest of our lives, like, because I say the same thing, it's going to be an on ongoing forever journey, and um, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm just now at, at 55 starting to really dig pretty deep, um, mm-hmm. which I probably should have done a long time ago, but well, you're you know, here. You're here now. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. I'm here now, and God's, and I knew yeah. that also, but I also knew that God, like 20 years ago, I knew that God would use me in some way mm-hmm. to talk about my story or even just to, to be a you know, an educator. And so, right. um, so yeah, I, I go out, I teach Darkness to Light, Stewards of Children, which is a, a program for adults. And we just believe that it is important for adults to start getting more knowledge on the subject so that they can watch out for that little three-year-old, Christina. I mean, it, you didn't know at that time. Right. You could not have known what was going on. And then you also right. didn't realize when you were older, you know, as you started getting more promiscuous, that mm-hmm. you couldn't have, have connected that because you, you just weren't there yet. You weren't in, in a mind state to be able to do that. And so um, right. somebody should have been there for you and and pulled you out of that, been able to recognize that. And, I, um, you know, one of the things that we, we say in the classes all the time is, um, it, it's the, it is the adult's responsibility. We need to stop putting that back onto the children because they don't know. I know at five years old, I, when I had my first experience, I remembered it. I didn't know what was going on. As a matter of fact, I thought that maybe I just wasn't mature enough to be able to handle what we, he was trying to do. You know, and so the, the thoughts of a five-year-old, you just don't know really where they are on that spectrum. And if they've been abused before, like you were at three, by five years old, you're going to start being able to relate, even though you can't make sense of it, you'll be able to start to relate probably the feeling good aspect of it, even though it was not a a good thing to happen to you. You felt that, you know, which is normal. I mean, you can't help that as a child able to, you know, have some kind of an arousal when when you are being abused, because that's also how the, the per, you know, the perpetrator wants to play the game as well, because then it feels that they don't feel so bad about taking advantage of you. So, I mean, unless they're just absolute monsters, which, you know, I'm sure you had as well. 
in your fear of people at times. But, um, yeah, I'm just so sorry that 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 was your life. And I'm so glad that you are healing, that you are on that path to healing. And I'm just honored to be able to hear your story. Thank you, thank you. And Kim, you you mentioned earlier about the book club. What was the name of the book again that you mentioned? Oh, it's called um, it's called a place called a place called home, and it's by David Ambrose. David A M B R O D. It's a memoir, and um, we're just getting started on that. We're on page chapter five, six. So um, it's, you know, I I think it's important also for not only professionals to read these kind of stories, but I think it's also good if a survivor is in the right headspace for the survivor as well to be able to read these kind of books because it also puts into, well, for instance, me, I guess I could talk for me, it puts in my mind, you know, the the fact that I'm not alone. And it breaks my heart to have to hear your story or to, you know, have to read this story as well. Um, but I know that we're not alone and, and we're here for each other. So, you know, thank you again. And just know that you are part of the NASCA family, you know, from here on out. And you are welcome <laughs> to call in anytime and um, you know, like I said, we do on um, you know, some nights we have maybe five other people on the panel that, that are just here to support whoever's on. And um it does help a little bit when you have a little bit and I know you were kind of last minute notice on getting on, but um but from here on out you can definitely tell people about this interview and um and direct people to listen to it because it'll be on the NASCA page forever. Mine, I, I first told my story on NASCA about seven years ago, and so that's still on there as well. You could always go back to your scan number and refer people to it because it'll always be there. So again, yours is 3248. So you can go on the NASCA website and, um, and find your scan number. So, um, Dr. Davis, do you have anything else you wanted to talk say? You know, before we wrap yeah, up. just wanted to say, yep. You just wanted to say, um, so Christina, she's been on the show probably two other times, but you know, um, it's always, you know, different parts of the story every time she shares her story. And we do want to encourage you to come on and be a part of the panel, support other people, uh, and connect with other survivors because it's so needed. You know, it's so needed. And I just want to say your your um, poem was very powerful. I loved your poem. Um, it was very touching. Uh, and so just keep doing what you're doing and keep being a voice and being used by God because you're doing, you're doing great work. So just keep it up. Thank you. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. If you, do you, for anybody that's listening, um, what would you say to those who may be, you know, getting ready to come out or how do you encourage them to come out? Um, What would you say to somebody listening today? 
who hasn't come out and should, you know, probably wants to come out. Any words of encouragement? I would, I would encourage them to, you know, find someone that they can trust um, and talk to them. You know, it could be, you know, there might be children listening to this. It could be your teacher. It could be um, SRO, you know, or principal or whomever it is. But then if you feel like you really can't do it, start by writing. You know, uh, I love to write. I've been writing <laughs> since, like, elementary school, and that's been a really great way to express myself, you know. And sometimes I would um, – I had a mentor who told me, you know, if I can't say it, just write it. And I remember writing my mom a letter about a lot of the things that was happening to me, and I gave her this letter I think I was around that same age, about 12 or 13. I gave her a letter and told her what was happening. And in that letter, I let her know about the family members who were doing things to me. And she confronted them. Like, shout out to my mom. My mom, she always believed me. And I'm just so grateful for that because some people don't have that. Or their mom may be jealous or whatever the case is. But my mom, she always believed me. And I thank God that she's helped with saving my life. And I think that part of most of her and being who she is is why I'm why I'm the woman I am today and, and being able to survive. So if you can't speak it, write it, give it to someone, give that letter to someone, let them read it, and, and just so you can release that burden. You don't have to keep holding it. You don't have to hold it, and you don't have to go through this by yourself. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm so glad you had that support available to you. That's amazing. And like you said, not a whole lot of people do. And a lot of times it's um, even enabled, you know, it's con it's continued on because that other parent is enabling the one parent, um, whether they know it consciously or subconsciously. I think at some point, you've got to understand that something isn't right that's going on Thank in the you. house. And um, and so for me, you know, for people who just say, well, I just didn't know, you, you know, it's like, mm, I don't know. I think it's as an adult. So that's why you need to be more aware. You need to have some training around knowing what to do, just like, you know, we train, well, we, we train our children how to not run into the street from the time they are itty bitty, and um, and that's what we should be training our children from the time they're itty bitty about body safety. And you know, not only are we telling our kids to listen and obey our older adults, but we also need to be telling them on the other side of it, though, if they are not saying something that I would say as a you know as your parent or that makes you feel comfortable. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, then you have a right to say no. And I think um, a lot of times that's where us as parents will drop that ball is, is you know, just saying you have to listen and not saying there is another side of it. So if it's, not a, if it's uncomfortable to you, then you need to be able to um, tell me that and then I need to be able to accept that as truth and not think my child is lying. I mean, because that's what we have been kind of trained to do as well. <laughs> as adults, we do. We are, we're trained to believe the other. Mm -hmm. 
the other adult in the situation. Right. Because they probably are telling the truth, and, and most likely they aren't telling the truth. So it's that we need to just have this whole mind shift as a society mm-hmm. and how we think about it and, and how we're going to be more proactive in preventing it. So it's good that, um, mm-hmm. you know, we have... Aaron's Law out there. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And, and you know, we talk about it every once in a while. It's that's a good thing to kind of lead with, but it doesn't give people um, the actual outlet to be able to then make changes. So, yes, certain states, most states are supposed to provide, are supposed to provide that education but there's not any kind of oversight on it and how it's going to go. So, yeah, we've got just a couple seconds. Can I ask a quick quick question? Sorry. Ms. Christian, how do we um, find you uh, or your book? Can you say you have one minute? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So my book, you can find it on Amazon. It's Suppress Wounds, S-U-P-P-R-E-S-S-E-D, Wounds, W-O-U-N-D-S, Redemption and Recovery on Amazon and also on Kindle, and I'll be working on the audio very, very soon. So Suppress Wounds, Redemption and Recovery, and that's how you can find my book, guys. What about can people reach you on Facebook or Instagram or anything? Uh, Facebook, just my name, Christina Jones. That's Christina with a K, last name Jones. And also on, I'm on TikTok. I'm still learning the Instagram TikTok. I believe it. My handle is suppress wounds underscore redemption and recovery. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, have a, and it'll be on the website as well. So we are off, off there now. But um, thank you again for being on, and I appreciate your your vulnerability. So we look forward to hearing you again or hearing you again sometime. Have a great evening. Yeah. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.